Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's the wheelhouse, but there's no Mr. Dankowski. We sent him to the Department of Motor Vehicles. He never came back. He may be working there now, actually. I, you know, I, I bet he would straighten things out, actually. All right, so uh, it's me instead, Colin McEnroe, hosting The Wheelhouse, a meager and unsatisfactory replacement, but you'll just have to make do with me. Fortunately, we have excellent panelists to make up for my massive deficits and liabilities. Speaking of deficits, we'll be talking about the budget. Uh, but with us right now is, I don't know why I think that's a funny thing that I just said. But anyway, Christine Stewart is here with us. She's the editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. And then Matt Kaufman, investigative reporter for the Hartford Current. He might be investigating something right now. You might be undercover here, right? You, this could be just a ruse that you're a panelist on the show while you're actually investigating we something. We don't do a lot of undercover. We never misrepresent ourselves. I am, in fact, Matthew Kaufman, investigative reporter <laughs> for the Hartford Current. Because uh, that's, that's weird because this is actually a food line that you're in right now. So you, <laughs> you would have been within your rights to video The food us. line at DMV. Yeah, and speaking of um, – uh, of investigations and videoing and things like that. CTN is here with us today. They are recording this for future use. Uh, it's going to come right after. There's, Matt's actually hosting a new game show on CTN called Secret Severance. Uh, and uh, so we'll be on right after that. Uh, but hello to our friends at CTN. So we're going to talk, we're going to begin by talking about the budget. Um, and you know, Matt, um, I sometimes feel as though, like in the last couple of years, I sort of felt like Governor Malloy, he doesn't really like doing the budget anymore. It's like there's no real upside to doing the budget, right? There's never any good news or something. I mean, maybe he's just sort of tired of it. Well, I suppose you could say I, I promised to institute no larger than the third largest tax increase in state history, but that may not uh, you know, win him a lot of, of kudos. No, I mean, the, the Connecticut budget is in terrible shape. We are perhaps in this sort of you know, perpetual crisis situation. And if you're a politician, uh, why would you want to perpetually talk about uh, crises? So um, it, probably not maybe the most important thing on his plate, but certainly not the thing that uh, he'd be most interested in speaking about on a regular basis. And when the governor isn't interested in speaking about something, he can always get somebody else to speak about it. In this case, that would be his loyal budget czar, Ben Barnes. Let's hear Ben Barnes on where we live talking about the budget. We are in a very difficult position fiscally, uh, and our ability to accomplish some of the things that we would all like to accomplish uh, is extraordinarily limited. And I... um, uh, don't well. I'll apologize in advance once, but only once for what's going to be a really tough year. Oh dear! Uh, and uh, well, I mean, he's apologizing in advance. That doesn't sound so good. Uh, now they have a budget deficit for the coming fiscal year of about five hundred million dollars. Let's hear Ben Barnes talking about that. You get to half a billion dollars, and it's really hard to find solutions. Um, there are uh, very limited uh, approaches that you can take. To, um, to do that. I mean, you can raise taxes or you can uh, make extraordinarily challenging cuts to services or some combination of them. Now, those uh, comments were both made at a forum uh, for Connecticut Voices for Children, where, Christine, you know, you go to the Voices for Children forum, the juice, juice boxes start flowing, and, you know, people just start saying almost anything. But this isn't, no wonder Matt says that Governor Mullet doesn't want to talk about the budget. That doesn't sound like it's very much to talk, fun to talk about. 
No, it's not fun to talk about. And Ben Barnes is in the unenviable position every year of coming to this forum to speak to advocates a week before they unveil their budget. So he knows what's in it, but he can't say what's in it because he can't take away the the governor's um, gusto, I guess. Right. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a wedding. You don't, you don't see the bride. Right. <laughs> so he, he's building this suspense, but we kind of all know what, what the outcome is going to be. Well, uh, it's, except it's, he sounds very negative in those quotes, and he sounds even, I would say, even borderline depressed, except that you reported this week that he also said that we – this is from the Connecticut CT News Junkie uh, – we need to make sure that we're doing wonderful things. Wonderful things like like unicorns? I think we're going to get unicorns. What actually besides unicorns does he mean by wonderful things? Um, I think just wonderful things. I think we're just talking about core services. Um, core and, services! <laughs> the state needs to focus on those core services. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's no extra. There's no extra to do anything. Um, so we have to use our money wisely. Think happier thoughts, Matt. Yeah, you can't fly I, if you don't think happy thoughts. I mean, I, when I heard that, I, I understood him to be talking about puppies. But Christine may be right. Mm-hmm. It may be more about core services. Well, here's the other thing that happens, OK? So one of the things that Ben Barnes, in some seriousness, Ben Barnes, I mean, I think I sort of feel for him. Because in a way, he really does want to talk to us like we're grownups. And if we're grownups, then we understand that there's... Uh, a half a million dollar, uh, half a billion dollar budget hole in one year, and a much bigger budget hole. I think there's some debate about how big, but over a billion dollars probably in the following year. You know, depending on whose numbers you believe, and so it doesn't really make sense to take things off the table right away. And so that seemed to be what he tried to convey, maybe at the uh, Voices for Children forum, and even when he was questioned by the jackals of the press afterwards about this. It's kind of like he he. It's like, you know, I mean, you don't want to say that you're gonna, you'll are you never do anything to raise revenue. Although, how do you fix these problems without raising so, revenue? So in order to avoid talking about that, he also had a pastry in his hand while he was oh. talking to reporters so that he could continually put the pastry in his mouth if he didn't want to answer a question. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so he, he wouldn't say whether, he you know. He's like, I think we're probably will not actually raise taxes. So he wouldn't say whether they were going to raise taxes or not, but immediately after. After that, the governor's spokesperson, um, Devin, said uh, that, no, there are not going to be any tax increases. So if there's not going to be any tax increases and we're facing a half-billion-dollar deficit, then there obviously has to be spending cuts. And there's going to be some deep spending cuts. And uh, they're going to have to figure out a, a new way to do government, especially as we're going into an election year. I mean, obviously, nobody wants to see tax increases going into an election year. At the same time, spending cuts, um, you know, there's a constituency for every spending cut. Uh, so you also don't want to make people upset by cutting too much spending. You know, I've covered a lot of budget chiefs in my time, going all the way back to Anthony Milano. I think it was maybe Ella Grasso's budget chief. And they all kind of lie, right? I mean, they're all, uh, for the most part, very nice people. I can think of maybe one or two who weren't very nice. But they all lie because they kind of have to lie, right? They can never really tell you the truth and stuff. I think Ben Barnes tries to be truthful. Maybe more than most people. There's something very scholarly about him. So he'll say things like, well, we may be in a permanent state of fiscal crisis. That turns out not to be a really good thing to say. But, you know, he's just trying to honestly convey this stuff. And and I think as a numbers guy, he's not a politician. As a numbers guy, he looks at a half a billion dollar hole and then a maybe a billion plus coming down the road. And he thinks, well, it really doesn't make sense to start limiting options right now. And that's because he's not a politician. I mean, the politicians 
all immediately say, oh, no, we will limit our options. We will take essentially one-third of our options off the table, the ones that involve raising more revenue. I mean, does, I, if I were him, I'd be thinking, well, why would we do that before we even have the conversation? Uh, yeah, and I agree. I mean, I, I don't uh, cover the legislature and the government closely, but Barnes has always struck me as a fairly straight shooter. And so um, it does make sense that if you're the budget guy staring at an, an enormous uh, fiscal hole, uh, that you wouldn't be eager to say, well, what's sort of the, you know, first-tier politically expedient things to be uh, to say here. Now, at the same time, when the governor says he's not going to raise taxes, I mean, given the history of, of sort of the, <laughs> you know, linguistic uh, somersaults done there, um, I think it's appropriate for the press to sort of ask some very detailed questions there of say, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, um, and, well and, and it was his and, spokesman who said it. It yeah, hasn't true. been Malloy yes. yet who right. said it. So right. we're waiting until the bond commission meeting on Friday to confront Malloy. Right. right. I mean, his spokesman, uh, Devin Puglia, said at this time, although Governor Malloy has spoken about this recently and um, without a tremendous amount of wiggle room. Let's hear him. I have made it clear that we are not, I am not proposing the raising of, uh, of taxes and I, and, and I oppose the raising of taxes. Which kind of means, you know, if anybody raises taxes, it's not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> Those I, people. I, I literally time. read that the same when when I uh, first saw that. I'm like very carefully parsing. I'm not. Right. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> and if somebody does it, I'm not going to like it either. But it might happen. <laughs> well, and, and that's exactly what happened last year. I mean, you know, he said, well. He said he wasn't going to raise taxes on the campaign trail. He ended up putting some revenue increases in his budget, and then he signed in nearly $2 billion of tax increases he signed when he signed the budget. Well, the other thing that uh, they're starting to talk about, so, I mean, it's not just Malloy. It's uh, Brendan Sharkey, the Speaker of the House. So he's got to figure out how to make some of these numbers work. And I noticed, Christine, that one thing he was thinking about, because you've got to look around, right? You're not going to raise revenue, apparently, maybe, apparently. And so you get this big hole, and there's only so many things you can cut. You already cut a lot of them, so who could you? Who could you? How oh, the towns? Yeah. How about the towns? <laughs> the stupid towns. What are the towns doing? So that's like his latest thing, right? Yeah, that's definitely his latest thing. I mean, you know, performance-based budgeting and the towns. You know, if we're going to give you money, you better regionalize and and create efficiencies with your, you know, you know y- those nearby towns. Otherwise, we're not going to give you as much money. And oh, if we don't give you that much money, then we can save that much money and use that for the state budget. Right. So, and a part of it is there's like a carrot and stick thing, right? It's like if you don't, we're going to come up with these things that you're supposed to do that involve consolidating services that are repetitious, you know, and then if you don't do them, you won't get your money. Exactly. Yeah. So this is going to be like the cigarette tax where, where there's sort of a, an appropriate, you know, public policy. And unfortunately, it works and ends up costing, you know, the state a lot of money. So, I mean, are there politicians who are secretly hoping that towns continue to fail to regionalize so that they, the state can save money? Well, some of these things, do I think, are going to be tough sells in towns, Matt. You know what this state is like. There's 169 towns. They all think they have to have their own 911 systems and their own this and their own that. There's nothing, never anything. So, I mean, one of the things Sharky's talking about, I think, is just a sort of school transportation schedule. Yeah. So they all do them at the same time. So at least that could be coordinated, which that seems reasonable somehow. But the town sovereignty is, as you know, something where people get their backs up. Right. Which is interesting, especially proposing that in an election year because – in an election year, you need the help of your local municipal officials to help you get reelected. He doesn't need any help from the people in Coventry. He just needs <laughs> help from the people in Hamden. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. He does have his own reelection campaign to worry about. 
But I mean, this is something that our former colleague, uh, Tom Condon, has just said for years that, you know, that the there's no equivalent of town, of county government. And, and as a result, there's all this little rinky dinky stuff that absolutely has to be redundant. Well, it's a shame that not everything can work as well as the MDC. Right. Okay. <laughs> that was so unfair. That was so unfair. So um, one last thing about uh, Ben Barnes, although I do agree that he has kind of a scholarly, you know, quality, which makes him, you know, seem like he's at least trying to be somewhat honest with us. But I did notice, and I actually saw your body language, uh, Christine, and the people on CTN are going to see this too, when I was talking about the year after this year. So half a, it's a little more than half a billion probably this year. And then the year after that, it could be like, I don't know, 1.8 billion, all this kind of stuff. But he said, he, he doesn't really like talking about that. He said, I think the notion that we are foreseeing red ink in fiscal 18 is preposterous. Uh, and he said that no one in state government can, can fairly project economic or revenue growth that far out. Well, I mean, his argument is that, you know, we have to come up with these numbers. We're, we're required by law to make these projections. And I don't necessarily believe that, you know, inflation is going to do this or that, you know, we're not going to cut something from current services and, and we're going to have a balanced budget. Because something really good could happen that we're not anticipating. There are wonderful things in the budget. Something like? Like unicorns. We could actually sell their poop for fertilizer, too. It makes everything grow. All right. So we have to move on here. Um, in fact, uh, the, another thing that's happening uh, in the world of government is that uh, Governor Malloy is announcing some staffing changes at the Department of Labor and at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And so last week, DMV Commissioner Andres Ayala uh, submitted his um, resignation after a string of problems at his department. Um, everybody, I think, is probably pretty familiar with what those problems are. A lot of them... A lot of them seem to have to do with sort of transitioning into the digital age, which, to be fair, has been happening for quite some time. I mean, the digital age has been happening for quite some time. And, you know, it's sort of weird because I actually never really have bad experiences with motor vehicles. I always, like, I don't know, I just do what they tell you to do and fill out the forms. And I'm all sort of, how do these people get in these situations where they have these five-hour waits at motor vehicles? Yeah, I haven't had bad waits uh, within, you know, inside the Department of Motor Vehicles um, in my Kids trying to get a driver's license, and there's sort of you know three months to take a test at a computer screen, and then three months to take a driving test, and so uh, we've seen sort of oddly long delays on that. And but yeah, I've never actually had like a terrible experience inside the DMV. I think they've actually streamlined things uh, fairly well in terms of you know not making it the Disneyland version of uh, you know waiting in line. Yeah, I mean the, the if you go to the satellite offices stuff works pretty well. But I do I mean Tucker uh, our producer actually did have some agonizing thing that involved being on the phone and not lot and not so great. And and phones are tough. Yeah. I, I can I can yeah. Well the the service <laughs> that we're talking about, you know, is the insurance suspension issue. Right. You could only call on the phone. There was mm-hmm. no way that you could actually even physically go to the office and, and talk to somebody about that issue. So, um, but uh, the uh, the other thing is, and he's sending in a guy that he he uh, Malloy is sending in a guy that he regards, I guess, as his troubleshooter. Uh, fixer, 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 fixer is not a good thing. You should say troubleshooter. <laughs> fixer is very. That's a very. I think he did say troubleshooter, but I thought fixer. <laughs> that's a very Roland era term. Is fixer? We don't like that term anymore. Um, but I mean, you know, there and John Leonard's been reporting about sort of clashes basically between DMV and the contractors uh, that they hired to do to put in some of these computer systems. But it, this does seem like something that computers can fix, right? I mean, I mean, I, I do – I mean, I realize there's one thing, that, n- not so great, but um, 
I managed to do an awful lot of stuff with DMV online now. So my understanding of from from a DMV worker um, when I went there during the long line period and the transition uh, was that there's a lot more things that the workers now have to do in the front end of the software system that they used to do on the back end when the customers weren't standing in line. So there's a little bit of a difference. And workers, obviously, were creating their own workarounds to the old system, and now they have this new system to deal with, and they can't create those workarounds. And uh, so the other uh, other personnel shift, if, shift is a former mayor of Hamden, uh, Scott Jackson, led them through the snowstorm last year. He's going to be the labor commissioner now, replaces Sharon Palmer. He's the third labor commissioner for Dan Malloy, uh, and the first who's not a union president. Although I think this, like, Jackson is the guy they're really grooming for big stuff, I think. I think this... You know, this is a guy who I wouldn't be surprised to see running for governor one of these days. I don't know if this has anything to do with him I, getting this gig. but I definitely see him running for governor <laughs> one of these days, even though he said he's, you know, not really into it. He's, you know, more of a, a policy wonk. Um, I see that they are grooming him. All right. So we're going to take a break uh, and we're going to come back with more. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, WNPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back with more of Matt Kaufman and Christine Stewart after the proverbial this. And this is Where We Live. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm Colin McEnroe, in for John Dankosky. Before we get back to our conversation, let me tell you about something that's starting today. WNPR is launching a podcast called The Radius Project, created by a team led by our executive producer, the big kid, Katie Tularski. It has five episodes that focus on five points in Hartford and has stories from those areas. We hope you'll give it a listen, no matter where you live, because the stories are great. You'll learn new things about Hartford, even if it's where you do live. Find all the audio and lots of photos at radiusproject.org. That's our new podcast. Well, our guest here in studio, uh, Christine Stewart, uh, editor of ctnewsjunkie.com, and Matt Kaufman, investigative reporter for the Hartford Current and uh, host of the coming game show on CTN, Secret Severance. Uh, CTN's here in the studio with us, too. And you can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website at wnpr.org or find us uh, on Twitter at Where We Live. Actually, somebody did do one of those things. Fred called in from Bloomfield. Hi, Fred. Hi. Um, I just let me get away from the the noise that um, is around me because I didn't know I'd show. I, I I was a little distressed that you went through your whole discussion of the budget. Um, without ever mentioning the fact that Connecticut over the last 25 years is the worst performing state economy in the country. We're worse than Michigan since 1990. We are, you know, second worst in recovery since 2007. Our state economy is just performing very, very poorly. We've had 11 months since 1990 in which total employment exceeded the previous level. There's no state that's performed as poorly as Connecticut in terms of its economic. Our output in Connecticut is still below the peak of 2007. Of course, we've got a budget crisis, and we're not actually pursuing many strategies to generate economic development. Um, you know, there was just a report issued by Leland Katz. Um, we're horribly behind on IT. In fact, we're the only state in the country where connectivity has declined. <laughs> um, and... You know, we actually did have we did actually have that on our list of possible topics to talk about. Well, what do you know? It's not like you're an economist or something. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. This actually is Fred Carson, who is an economist. Yes, it is. Um, so you know, it's it's we need to put the budget crisis in the context of 
you know, what what are we doing to generate economic growth in Connecticut? And, you know, when, you, when you're sitting between New York and Boston metro areas, which are two of the strongest growth poles in the country, and you're not sharing in that, you know, something is very, very wrong. Fred, I, I agree. And doing. It's sort of a conversation for another day. And it's also, I mean, actually, they're sort of bailing water out of the Titanic right now. And you're talking about why don't they get a better boat? Uh, and that would be good to do at some point. But um, I don't think that's really – that's what, not really what Ben Barnes is thinking about right now. They're just thinking about how do we make these numbers work? What horrible thing do we have to do? But I, I do agree that, I mean, our economy seems to be uh, about 20 years behind everybody else's and our understanding about innovation and growth of small business and stuff like that. But conversation maybe for a different show another day. So we have to move on, uh, and we have to move on to um, the, the troublings uh, saga of Andy Maynard. Um, we talked about this last week uh, on The Wheelhouse, and we're going to be talking about it again. He is a state senator. Most people know uh, he had an accident at his home that resulted in a pretty serious head and brain injury. But he did return to active duty as a state senator um, this year uh, and then recently was involved in a car crash. Um, and initially, the state Democrats reported the accident involved just the senator's car. Uh, we now have the 911 call, which mentions a second car that we eventually learned was hit. Let's just uh, hear uh, that. Is this, is, yeah, this is the 911 call. Well, I was looking in my rearview mirror, and they actually went across the divider, hit another car, and went down the ditch. So there are a lot of different aspects to this map, but one of them is there's been kind of a fog of war problem just getting information about this. You know that it's I said last week, this is why I get nervous when the General Assembly starts monkeying around with the freedom of, uh, of information law, especially as regards police records, which, of course, they've tended to do a lot since 2013, 2014. Uh, there's been a lot of this kinds of stuff because it does seem that in situations like this, it's really important that the press be able to get their hands on significant police records. And I understand the monkeying they've done in the past has had to do for the most, car, most part with homicide cases, not things like this. But in general, it's an argument against uh, elected officials you know, messing around with FOI laws because in situations like this, there may be an incentive that politicians have for us not to get certain things that we want to get. Well, and, and it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of <clears throat> completely accurate information coming out right from the get-go. I mean, that uh, 911 call clearly references a second car involved in a crash, um, and that's not how we initially heard uh, that the accident occurred. Um, I mean, this is clearly you know, people uh, for a, a good deal of time have walked quite gingerly you know, around uh, these issues, um, but these are important issues. You know, this is an extraordinarily powerful person in the state of Connecticut, and the expectation of privacy that he has, even on a medical issue, um, is dramatically lower than the rest of us have and that we would, uh, you know, expect others to afford us. Um, he needs to come clean about his uh, ability to serve the people of Connecticut who employ him. And uh, I, I don't think we have seen that. I mean, the day has written sort of increasingly stronger stories about the importance of him coming forward and sp communicating with them. If there are speech issues, there are ways to accommodate that. Um, there are questions uh, about the motivations uh, both of, of Maiden and of the Democratic Party uh, in dealing with this situation the way in which they're dealing with it. Um, it's 
bad public policy. It's bad government. Well, you know, we can come back to that, to that in a second, but I just want to stay with the first part of this, Christine, too. I mean, from the very beginning, we heard from Adam Joseph. One car accident. Adam Joseph is spokesperson for the um, Democratic Caucus uh, in the state Senate. And to whatever extent we heard anything from Waterford. Well, you know. uh, the Waterford Police Department in Adam, not, well, in Adam Joseph's defense, yeah. that's what he was told by the Waterford Police Department, and that was the initial statement by the Waterford Police Department that it was a one-car accident. And, and my recollection is that that statement sat around for at least 24 hours without, I mean, with the, us reporting it over and over again, you know, in various uh, outlets of the news media. And you'd sort of think at some point the Waterford Police, I mean, they from the 911 call, they know it's not a, right. you know, at some point they would call AP or somebody and go, I you mean, know, I, you guys keep saying it's a one-car accident. It's not. Right. I, and I, I think anybody even driving past the accident that day, I actually had a, a former reporter friend of mine drive by the accident. She's like, it wasn't a one-car accident. There hmm. were definitely, you know, two cars. Um, actually, she said that there were there were three cars there. So, I mean, from obvious onlookers, I don't know why the Waterford Police Department would say it was a one-car accident. Yeah, and, and why then it would just be reported and re-reported incorrectly with nobody stepping forward to say, ah, no, 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 there's two cars there. Yeah. Uh, I, I find that bothersome. I don't really know. It is, and it's bothersome that the Waterford Police Department, to my knowledge, has not interviewed Senator Maynard yet. Mm. I mean, so this is their their job to investigate exactly what happened with this accident. So the 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 accident is problem one. Problem two is the problem that Matt's talking about. That um, from the point of view of some people, anyway, we really don't even have a clear idea. Going back to last January when he came back to active duty, what Andrew Maynard's level of functioning is as a state senator. I know you've been talking to Senate leaders, leadership yeah. about this. Uh, what are they saying to you? Um, no, he is definitely participating. Uh, I mean, the fact that he was there in Hartford at a caucus that was not a mandatory caucus that day um, before he got into the accident. Not every Democratic senator was at that caucus talking mm-hmm. about legislation. And he was he actually had put forth, you know. Um, two ideas uh, for legislation, according to Senator Looney, um, regarding his his district. Um, so, you know, to the extent Senate leadership believes that, you know, he is he is involved in serving the people of his towns. And so uh, one thing that I can say about this is that they need to change the message or get the message out. If that's the message and if that's the truth, they need to get that out better. I, I was at a public event um, the other day that would had nothing to do. It was actually, I think it was last Wednesday or Thursday. But anyway, some guy came up to me afterwards. It was a, pol- a political conversation with Steve Kornacki from MSNBC. And this guy from the audience came up to me. And he was mad. He was mad like Fred Carsonson was just mad. You know, he was like, he was madder than that about this Andy, Andy Maynard thing. And he was mad at me because I had said, well, you know, if he really isn't able to function as a senator, but they want to give him his benefits and stuff, they should have just done a special act last year and taken this whole question off the table. I mean, you're and they saying, could have. They could have. I know. mean, they very well could have. And they've done that for, for other yeah. lawmakers in the past. Um, so I think that there is a reason mm. why they didn't. Mm. But, but right now, Matt, the narrative doesn't work very well politically. What, what people are seeing, fairly or otherwise, is they're seeing this guy that they're being told doesn't really fully function as a state senator, isn't as available to the press as he might be, isn't as available to his constituents uh, as he might be. That's some of the stuff that David Collins said uh, last week here. And then he has a car accident, and it's not really clear under what process or protocol he was cleared to drive. I mean, there seem, seem to be a lot of questions. It's the kind of thing that makes people angry. Yeah. And once again, we have uh, sort of politicians becoming spokespeople. And, and, you know, I mean, 
the best they can hope for is that we're going to buy, you know, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you kind of thing. I mean, I, I think Marty Looney's a great guy, um, but I don't want to hear Marty Looney telling me that Andy Maynard is, you know, fully functioning and, uh, you know, none of his constituents and the rest of the state uh, has anything to be concerned about. Um, I, I am uncomfortable with a situation where you have politicians sort of building this, in some cases, literal wall around another politician and blocking access to you know, the media and the public uh, to hear from him directly. Um, yeah, I'd be mad at you for proposing a special uh, act in order to you know, take care of uh, a politician and give favors that the rest of us uh, don't get. So well, I, would, I, I wouldn't go Carstensen on you. No, but, I, no yeah. I did make all those points, too, that basically these are benefits that are not available to the general public. Uh, and, and that all I was really saying at the time, what I tried to explain to that guy is, you know, if, if, if they're going to do this, and rather than string it out, there's a way that you could do it, uh, you know, much earlier in the process. But, Christine, you cover the legislature effectively every day that it's in session and sometimes when it's not. So, I mean, do you feel like, like you have access to Andy Maynard the way you do to any state senator and that that you have a pretty good sense of, you know, how he's functioning in his job? No, I think that there are still some questions that, that need to be answered. Um, and there are still some questions about, you know, how well he's able to function in his job. But at the same time, are we, you know, and I've had casual conversations, nothing, um, nothing policy related with Senator Mader since the accident. Um, but, you know, uh, are we holding him to a different standard than we hold other politicians? I mean, it's just, you know, are we asking all of the senators these hard questions about exactly how well they are serving their constituents? Yeah, although there, I mean, there are some red flags with him that don't exist with, with other people. That, that is true. Yeah, that is true. Not completely unfair to ask. These. I don't right. want this no, guy coming up unfair. to me in another thing. So I, yeah, no. I want to talk tough. Um, <laughs> and I mean, Matt, one thing we can say, like when when I get out of this business of journalism, which, you know, could be tomorrow, who knows? Um, I, I'm going to open up like a crisis communications management because like we just covered this stuff all the time and they never do it right. So, the, <laughs> you know, so the, the one rule is tell everything the first time, yeah, right? Get, get in front of the story and be relentlessly honest. Um, and, and since that's the advice that every crisis, you know, communication counselor uh, will tell you when that doesn't happen, uh, the, it the never obvious, happens. Yeah. They never do it. The obvious <laughs> assumption is the truth is so horrible. Yeah. Uh, you know that uh, that line is a better option. So at, at the same time, I'm also thinking it just occurred to me, um, having having seen Gabby Giffords mm. and and her her brain injury when she does when she speaks, it's a prepared statement, mm-hmm. and, and that's the only only thing that she says. Um, at at these media events, mm-hmm. so it's kind of you know nobody really has gotten to to interview her or but of course she's not in political office well, anymore. Right. She's not. I, I mean, David's point last week was this: so, some of this has to be a conversation between Andy Maynard and his constituents. Can they talk to him the way that people? should be able to have access to their state mm-hmm. senator? And do they feel as though he's capable of representing their interests? Right. I mean, they elected him knowing that he had a brain injury, so some of it's on them too, I guess. But um, but still, I think that's, that's a very pressing question. Um, all right, well, we have to move on. Now we're moving on to uh, – Matt doesn't really like talking about the budget very much, but uh, he likes talking about secret severances, the new game show he's hosting on CTN. Um, this is something you've written about uh, this week, uh, and this is uh, – well, I'll let you set the stage. Why yeah, I- this is something I, r- I wrote on my blog that uh, you know probably 
somewhere between 11 and 14 people read. So for this entire show, people have heard you talking about this game show, Secret Severance, and have no idea what you're talking about. No, but they want to be on it. There's no one actually, uh, you know, (laughs) sees my blog uh, outside my home in my newsroom. Um, But yeah, the the, uh, former town manager of Newington um, has never gotten along with uh, folks on the town council of, of the other party. Um, and they were eager enough to get rid of him that they uh, threw seven months' salary at him to get him to leave, which is actually more than he's entitled to under his contract if they just flat-out fire him. Um, but in addition to finally being rid of him, they put a confidentiality clause in that no one could talk about the uh, uh, you know, the agreement, and everyone agreed to say only nice things about the town and about him and that no one would talk honestly to a uh, prospective employer. Um, and uh, when Christopher Hoffman, our reporter, asked for a copy of that uh, agreement, they were told, no, 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 uh, you know, we're not allowed to. It's confidential. Um, and indeed, such agreements are illegal in Connecticut. Uh, There's sort of an, an oddly worded but necessarily oddly worded statute that says any uh, separation agreement involving a public official in Connecticut that includes a clause saying the document shall uh, not be released must be released. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, to the semi-credit uh, of town officials when sort of advised, hey, actually it's against the law not to give us uh, the agreement, um, they gave us the agreement and, and it was intriguing uh, both in how they gave him more money than he was contractually obligated uh, to receive, and they wouldn't say why they gave him, you know, another twelve grand of other people's money, um, but also sort of these extraordinary steps they went through uh, to keep things quiet, that no one can say anything critical, uh, you know, that the outgoing town manager can't uh, criticize or disparage. No, um, is that part illegal? Because I, I, this is something that's come up repeatedly, and I know that they were talking about that in the legislature, and I can never, and I'm sure Christine has this problem even worse. I can never remember when they actually passed things or not. But there was one point, the, the whole gag order problem. And right, let me just right. set the, I'll set the stage for that a little bit. We've got a real problem. Separate, I mean, okay, secret severance agreements, obviously not so great. And the law does seem to specifically address that. But now parallel to that or ancillary to that are, is the gag order question. So uh, in the rolling years, uh, there was a protracted legal case involving a DEP employee named Ann Rapkin. She was a whistleblower type lawyer within the DEP who was trying to talk about some of the completely cruddy and horrible things that were going on and cronyism going on within the actual operations of the DEP. She ultimately, I think she was dismissed. She sued to get her job back. And there was this complicated legal settlement that included a gag order in order to get a lot of stuff that she got as part of her settlement. She had to agree never to talk about any of this stuff again, which meant that taxpayer monies were being expended paying a former public employee not to tell the public what she knew, uh, some of which was sort of material to the good or bad operations of the government. This came up more recently, Christine, when Michael Gargano, the provost of the higher education system, um, uh, who's a really great guy, but he got a nice settlement. And But part of the settlement was, once again, a gag order, exactly the kind of thing that Matt was talking about. No derogatory statements can be made about the operations of the Board of Regents or whoever they are. Um, and, and once again, that's sort of a – like if you somebody knows something, some public employee knows something that might be kind of useful to know, you kind of don't want to be paying them with taxpayer money not to say it. 
Yeah, no, that definitely is something that, um, you know, if, if the law doesn't currently exist, it sounds like it does exist that, you know, the, these severance packages have to be handed over um, to the media and, and the public and we, we have to know about them. I guess the gag order part of it, that that should be lifted, too. And yeah. There, there should be legislation to do that. I think there was specific talk within – I mean the problem with the legislature is like I can I, – I have these sort of vague shadowy memories <laughs> of them talking about doing something, but no actual real retention of whether like, they did, did they it or not. Did they do it? Did and they I, not do I it? I think that's mm. the way they want it, too. I think, I think that's not an accident that I don't know whether they ever did anything about that or not. But that's something you'll find out. When Secret Severance gets on the air, and you can win cash prizes, too, uh, on Matt Coffin's new game show. A certain percentage of the audience will think that this game show exists. Uh, and it may well. <laughs> it does sound good, doesn't I, I it? It sounds am, like I everything. Am, I am taking notes. Who can we talk to at CTN about this? I feel like we could get this on the air. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more fun, more surprises, and somebody's going to win a washer-dryer as part of their Secret Severance. Well, Governor Malloy will be giving his uh, big budget address. Uh, what will it be next? A week from today, right? A week from today. Um, so uh, how come he isn't talking about this? Uh, how come Fred Barnes is just walking around nasty as he want to be talking about uh, the state budget? Uh, well, it's because Governor Malloy has other things to do. He is at H-A-R, H-A-R, H-A-R with a V. V-A-R, V-A-R, V-A-R with a D. You're, you are such a Yaley. <laughs> <laughs> So Governor Miller is at Harvard talking about his Second Chance initiative um, in uh, addressing an an audience that included students, activists, a pediatrician, lawyers, and a juvenile court judge. Um, And so – Christine, this is something that Governor Malloy does like talking about, the fact that he uh, is kind of trying to get into the forefront of, uh, of politicians, of political leaders, revamping the criminal justice system. Crime is on a downward trend anyway and they're trying to take advantage of that to shrink down the size of the prison system and have more people on the streets as opposed to in prison. Yes. Uh, and, you know, he's been on this this, um, I guess, mission to to talk about uh, second chances for, I, I think, over two years now. Um, he even went to Germany um, to learn about their criminal justice system over there. Um, so this is one of the things that, you know, he can talk about safely and doesn't really require him to talk about the budget. Well, they're safely and they're safely. So uh, Lloyd McDonald, a former federal prosecutor who retired last year after 10 years as a Superior Court judge, reminded Reminded Malloy, I think this is from the Connecticut Mirror this week, of how one of the Bay State's earlier reforms put a convict named Willie Horton on the street in 1986, hunting the 1988 presidential campaign of the state's governor, Michael Dukakis. Matt, this is something that I've talked about on this show in the past, not not this exactly, but that, you know, initially the Republican minority in the Connecticut General Assembly seemed a, a little less enthusiastic about some of these reforms and, and said things that I thought maybe constituted a signal that maybe in the 2016 election, they, they might run some campaigns a little bit like this. Not that we have exactly a Willie Horton case that they can run on right now, but sort of just saying this is what he wants to do. The, he's soft on crime. And you know, since then, they've kind of bellied up to the bar a little bit with the Second Chance Society stuff. But in some ways, it's, there's, it seems weird and atavistic that we're having a Willie Horton conversation. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's a testament to how powerful – that image was. If, if you, you know, if you haven't looked at the Willie Horton picture, you know, the photograph lately, I mean, look at it and it'll bring back, oh, of course, that, you know, that's so brilliantly 
played into American fears. Um, and, and Paz, the story uh, today, there's, there's a, a great line um, about political reality and, and sort of they're safe and then, you know, there's really safe, uh, where he writes that success is diffuse, measured in statistics about falling crime rates and recidivism rates. Failure is specific, embodied in stories like Willie Horton. And that, that sort of is uh, the, the threat or the, you know, fear here. Um, and it's why I'm, I'm sort of surprised that we've seen some decent uh, bipartisan discussion around something that is kind of a, a wonky, thoughtful issue that can so easily be hijacked, uh, you know, by Willie Horton style uh, emotion. So, I mean, it's it's probably a good thing wherever we end up on it, whatever, you know, different people feel about it. Um, we're having a more honest discussion about it than, frankly, I ever thought we would. Right. There's, by the way, a great the, the Marshall Project, which is the thing that Bill Keller left The New York Times uh, to go work on. Uh, they have a terrific piece co-authored by Bill Keller about Willie Horton, uh, about sort of where he is now, but also how that thing played out. And, you know, to the point that you're just citing, he, he mentions that at the time, every state in the country had the kind of furlough program that Willie Horton basically exploited to get out and, and cause more mayhem. Um, and that Ronald Reagan, uh, in talking about California's program, said that it basically worked, but there, he said, you know, there are going to be some – no system is perfect. There's something like that. No system is – there's going to be these kinds of things that happen that aren't so great, which is exactly that point. And, and to, for that reason, Christine, it is interesting to watch the Republicans on this. They're, from a strategy point of view, as opposed to noble intent, you know, they're crazy if they hug this program all the way because – it really will give them some opportunities probably in some of the races they run to paint Malloy as soft on crime. I feel like in years past that that they haven't embraced um, – they did not embrace the um, so-called uh, good time credits uh, program uh, and they they fought against that and they, you know, they were able to – they thought come up with specific examples of people who had been let out and who then recommitted crimes or or killed people and you know were fairly successful i think during the last campaign of of sort of bringing that soft on crime image um so it is interesting that they they haven't done it this time yeah and and i don't have any you know idea of exactly why um why they they've sort of embraced this second chance society. Well, I have an idea is that, I mean, absent one of those specific things that tends to taint it, um, kind of the outlier thing that happens that's garish and horrible, absent that, it's a politically pretty appetizing thing. You know, the Department of Corrections is invariably the largest state department in Connecticut. You know, I mean, nobody likes that idea that, that the State Department has more employees than any other state department is prisons. And I mean, these things, they cost a lot of money. So you can save a lot of money if you can change your whole strategy. So that's what people like that until somebody gets killed. Yeah. No, I I think the money element uh, probably is what makes it in in these difficult economic times um, a a more palatable uh, discussion than, than it otherwise would be. All right. So uh, now let's let's go to another person who's engaging in deep thought about our criminal justice system. You know, what are its potentials? What are its untapped abilities to uh, change the dynamic between criminals and law abiding citizens? Of course, I'm talking about Maine Governor Paul LePage. Uh, He wants a different approach to criminal justice reform from what Governor Malloy is talking about. Here's (laughs) I can't even get through this without laughing. Here's what he told WVOM about punishment for drug traffickers. Uh, four years is, is 
is not good enough. We got to go to 20 years. We got to keep him here until they die. Okay. Um, well, actually, that, that he went further. I mean, the the interview was effectively over. The hosts were starting to, in fact, let Governor LePage go, uh, and he added one more thing. Governor, thank you for your time this morning. And you know, Rick, what I think we ought to do is bring the guillotine back. <laughs> guillotine. <now>. The guillotine. <laughs> we well, could have public executions and have, you know, we could even have uh, uh, which which hole it falls in. You know, you'd think living so close to all those francophones in Quebec, he'd be able to say guillotine. I, it's the first time I'd actually I'd read the quote before, yeah. but I had not heard it, and suddenly I want a quesadilla for lunch. Right. Um, <laughs> um, I don't. Is there any? I don't know. Was is, is there anything that we can say about this? I don't know. Is it a, is it a smart guillotine? <laughs> All right. So I, I am thinking does this, it like, only recognize the governor's thumbprint? <laughs> which which basket the head will fall in? Which is, I think is what he was saying at the end. We actually may make that a, a part of uh, the Secret Severance game show. It, it is a different kind of politician, right? I mean, usually you're trying to pry something interesting out of them. You know, they won't. They just won't say anything dispositive or interesting. Here, they're trying to get him off the show. Right. Hey, thanks for being here. <laughs> he goes, no, no, one more thing, Rick. <laughs> I think we got to start cutting people's heads off. Um, I want that kind of governor. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, we have time for just one more thing. I think we have. Oh, yeah, we're good. Well, I think we're gonna, this is all going to work out well. So um, Enfield. Enfield's such an interesting place. But uh, So the front man of the band Green Day, Billy Joe Armstrong, is getting involved in high school theater discussion in Enfield, Connecticut. The high school uh, drama club, they are called the Lamplighters. They were planning a production of Armstrong's. I would parenthetically say incomprehensible musical American Idiot, but they were, there were some parents who didn't want their kids involved. So uh, Billy Joe Armstrong posted a response. I realize the content of the Broadway production of American Idiot is not quite suitable for a younger audience. However, there is a high school rendition of the production, and I believe that's the one Enfield was planning to perform. It's suitable for most people. It would be a shame if these high, school, high schoolers were shut down over some of the content that may be challenging for some of the audience. But the bigger issue is censorship. So, Matt, you love stuff like this. So take it away. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was really interesting, and, and uh, I, I think it is uh, sort of a shame when, particularly in, in theater, which, uh, you know, like the arts in general, sort of explore controversial and difficult issues. And, and in some ways, that's sort of a safe space in which to explore. I can't believe I just said safe space. Yeah. Um, you know, difficult issues like that. Uh, high schoolers are like ridiculously more mature than we were as high schoolers. Um, it, it is a shame uh, to run away from controversial uh, or difficult issues that virtually every high schooler, down to you know the little fourteen-year-old ninth graders, um, have discussed, are familiar with, will not be shocked by, um, and might learn something by, even if via an incomprehensible musical. So um, this is not the first time stuff like this has come up in the state. Uh, Tim Herbst got involved in a whole mess down in Trumbull involving the uh, musical Rent. Um, and uh, Christine, actually, it's really a shame that Susan Bigelow isn't here with us right. because uh, she, I think, still lives in Enfield. She's very brave. She lives in Enfield. Um, but Enfield gets involved in this stuff all the time. They had um, <laughs> they had a case that dragged through the federal courts for well, it didn't drag. It was they had a federal court lawsuit filed against them because their high school graduation was held in a Bloomfield church, 
um, and it took two years to resolve it, and they had to pay out um, legal fees or their insurance. Their insurer had to pay out legal fees to the plaintiffs in that. Um, you know, the, they just and they they then they it was the time that this town council or politicians on the town council canceled a showing of Michael Moore's sicko, uh, his critique of the American healthcare system uh, at the local library. They sort of jumped in and said, "No, no, that's it's too ideological. You can't show it at the library." So, what is it? Did you used to cover Enfield or something? I did used to cover Enfield <laughs> for the Journal Enquirer. Um, I covered Enfield, and uh, you know, I can say that there are just two very different ends of the political spectrum in, in Enfield, and they're always they're always going at it. And these controversial issues always seem to arise, um, you know, involving the school system. Uh, I think Enfield was the first school system to embrace um, security guards um, carrying guns. Yep. Too. So, although they've they've got rid of them, they did get rid of them. Yeah, oh, okay. I looked it up. I just I just I interesting. Went, I went to school on Enfield. I mean, I think they gave it up because it was costing too much money. Right. Too. I mean, in addition to everything else. Interesting. I mean, anyway, uh, yeah. So Enfield is Enfield. You're very special. Um, I, I just I will say that first of all, although I I have seen American Idiot and I did find it incomprehensible. It was also kind of invigorating too. And I think Matt's making an important point too. It's 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 one that other people make too, which is that high school students are more sophisticated than we give them credit for being. And it's certainly not the case that in a musical filled with references to drugs and sex and profanity, they will therefore begin engaging in those things. They either are or they aren't already. There's no musical has the power to make them more or less interested in it. Uh, but you also understand there are probably some parents who kind of don't get it, kind of don't dig it that much and all that. All right. So we have to go. Uh, and uh, on that profound note, and so we want to thank very much uh, Matt Kaufman uh, from the Hartford Current. He is investigating something even as we speak. Uh, and Christine Stewart from CT News Junkie. The show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Technical producer, Kion Wolf. Digital editor, editor for WNPR, Heather Brandon. And the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tularski. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Ben Esty, Jackson Mitchell, Deanna Christopher. Carolyn Kuschensky and Daniel Keith. You can continue the conversation on our website, wnpr.org, where we live. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is where we live. <laughs>